0: Let's look now at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. As we close out our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're looking at this whole topic of uh, meaning and riches. Uh, and You say, oh boy, a sermon on money. Here we go. Well, um, yeah, here we go. So let's look at it and see what Solomon has to say about meaning and money. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are um, others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless." As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb and... As he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realize that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Let's pray together. Father, we, we need you this morning to come. And to open our hearts to the things that we hope in. We need you to come and to show us the deceitfulness of riches. Whether it be in placing our heart on gaining them. Or whether it be placing our heart on keeping them. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're available to us. We thank you that our greatest hope this morning is not the ability of a preacher or the giftedness of a preacher, but... But our greatest hope this morning is that Jesus, you promise to be among us and to teach us through your word. We thank you that you said your word will not go out void. And so we place our hope firmly in your promise. Oh, God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? May I decrease and may you increase. And Father, may I receive this sermon more deeply than anyone here. Father, we look forward to what you're going to do. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. This week, the Powerball lottery hit five hundred and ninety million dollars. They say that after taxes, that uh, the winner will have two hundred and forty-five, give or take a million or two. Uh, That's not a bad, a bad little earning. Uh, It was interesting to watch it this week because what was happening was as it increased in size. Um, this frenzy started. I mean, people that have never bought Powerball lottery tickets were going to buy them. Why? Because we all believe that $245 million might have some little impact on our lives. We all think that money does something. You see, money, to us as human beings, is so much more than money. Money is a power. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6. He tells us um, almost 2,000 years ago that money has a power to deceive us into relationship with it. It's bizarre. But Jesus was pointing out in Matthew 6 that we look to money for the very things that we are to look to God to be and to do for us. Listen to Matthew chapter 6. He said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. You see, it's interesting that Jesus is making this connection to King Solomon, the very one who is telling us about the meaninglessness of money. And what Jesus tells us is that we seek relationship with money in place of him. not that amazing? I mean, think about that. What does a child do when he wants something to eat? He doesn't cry out, money, money, mom, dad. What does a child do when, uh, when he or she needs a, a, a new pair of shoes? He doesn't say money, money, says mom, dad. But what do we do? You say exactly. There you go. (laughs) You got it. That's exactly what we do. Why? Because a child hasn't learned the power of money, but only the power of a parent, of a father. And what Jesus tells us is, is that we don't need to grow up when it comes to money. We need to stay childlike when it comes to money and God. And we need to see that He is our Father and money is not. This is a weird concept that that we look to money to save us. That we look to money to be in relationship with, almost like a lover, that can love us better than anyone or anything else, including God Himself. We look to, to money to make us beautiful. We look to money to make us powerful. We look to money to deliver us. We look to money and the things that it can buy to protect us. We look to money like we look to God. As I look at how we interact, I guess, in the church, this has become clear to me. Um, I've watched those with money relate to those that don't have money. And what I find is that the very center of the conversation in the church is rarely Jesus, but it's money and work ethic and how to get a job and what. Why? Because those with money are relationally closer to their money than they are to Jesus. If you have a harder time talking about Jesus to someone or, or talking yeah, about Jesus to someone, then you do about money you're closer to your money than you are to Jesus. I mean, that's just a reality. Anything that you have an easier time talking about to someone, you are closer to that thing than you are to Jesus. I see it countless times, and I think it's why this church community um, is so vitally important at downtown church. What I see are those that have money coming in relationship with those that don't have money And you know it happens every single time those with money all of a sudden become absolutely surprised that those without money can be actually happy, that they can actually be content. During our prayer time, when uh, someone um, who, who has no money is praising God publicly and from some deep place in their soul, those with money are quiet. Why is that? Oftentimes, because what they're realizing in that moment is that those people without money have a greater wealth than they do. And it's the first time they've ever experienced that. And it's powerful. Our view of money is absolutely important because it goes at the heart of everything it means to be a Christian. You see, generosity and giving is the very fruit of conversion. That's why this is so important. Think about the rich young ruler for a while. Jesus comes upon him. The rich young ruler says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus tell him? Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then follow me. Now, what Jesus is telling the rich man in that situation is there is a way to give away all, your, all you have and not be a Christian. But there's no way that you can give away or that you can become a Christian and not be generous. Do you see that? The Pope this week, the new Pope, said that really all God wants from us is our goodness. And I respectfully disagree with that. (laughs) Because if we have to give goodness to God, then we are hopeless. Because God is holy. And even our best is laden with sin. And so here's the reality. Giving our money away doesn't save us. But when we are saved, We give our money away because we've experienced a greater wealth. This is what it means to be a Christian. It hit me this week as I was working on this sermon. I thought this may be the strongest apologetic for Christianity or maybe the the, the best platform, at least in our day and age, to talk about relationship with Jesus than any other passage. Because we oftentimes act as if we can't relate to You know, a Christian life with God, like it's some weird thing having a relationship with God. Well, it's it's not weird at all. Just replace God with your money and then you understand Christianity. You see, conversion is this. When you become convinced at a deep place in your soul that Jesus, that God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is more is worth more to you than anything else. And then relationship follows. Why? Because you relate to that which you love. So conversion is simply becoming convinced that Jesus is is worth more than anything else, that he is the treasure, that he is the hidden pearl, that the kingdom of God is worth more than anything else in all the world. And if you believe that, conversion happens. Really, if you believe that, conversion has already (laughs) happened. Because you've been convinced by the Holy Spirit. Well, Solomon is playing the devil's advocate. He's using the Socratic method, as we've seen. Um, his name is uh, Koheleth. Uh, that's the, 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 the word used at the beginning of the book to show us that, uh, that Solomon is a philosopher. And so what he's doing here is he's not giving us the answers, even though it appears in this passage that he has given us the answer toward the end. He's not giving us the answer, and praise be to God for that. But what he's doing is he is driving us to some, some conclusions. He's asking the questions. And he's making propositions that we might go to the rest of Scripture to understand But what uh, the answers. But what Solomon is doing first is he is showing us that money is a bad God. Money is a bad God. It's a bad God for the poor. It's a bad God for the wealthy. It's a bad God for everybody. Let's look at it. First of all, money is a bad God. It's a bad God for the poor. I've received a real education over the last five years uh, because for the first time in my life, and I'm pretty embarrassed to say this, but I'll just admit it. For the first time in my life, I've been in relationship with those in deep poverty. Before this time, I've never had to be in relationship or I've never um, been in relationship with those that lived in, in any kind of poverty. You see, what I realize is that money insulates. What money does more than anything else is it insulates us from the needs of others. Because we don't have to. And in the church, we don't have to get involved in someone else's life if you have money. If you don't have money, you absolutely need other people. You have to be involved in the lives of others because you need people. You can't, you can't live alone. If you have money, you're insulated. And what I've seen more than anything is that this whole idea out there, whether it's you know um, one political party favors it or, or one group of people, I don't know. But what I've found is that it's the greatest lie on the planet that what everybody needs is just an opportunity. You see, those in poverty... Uh, don't start at the same starting line <laughs> as people that have resources. Uh, let me explain this. They, they, they start way behind. Uh, let me give you a statistic. Eighty-five percent of those that end up at, in the juvenile justice system are functionally illiterate. Eighty-five percent of those that end up um, in juvenile court are functionally illiterate. Something like 90 percent of those in, in prison are high school dropouts or didn't, um, know how to read by the time they were in the third grade. There is a direct correlation to poverty and being able to read. Why is that? Because in order to be able to to read, you have to have someone a parent or a caregiver who has the time and the structure and the insulation to focus on that education. but in poverty. You live in absolute crisis and survival mode. You don't have time because you're constantly surviving. You're on somebody else's schedule. If you have a job, you, you probably don't have a car, and so you're having to trust the untrustworthy bus system, you know, or friends and community around you. You have no grocery store in your neighborhood. Because Kroger's not going to put a grocery store in the middle of the hood. They wouldn't stay in business. And so you have corner grocery stores whose, uh, whose food is not that healthy and, and the prices are exorbitant. But you've got to eat what you have. <laughs> you've got to eat what's there. And in the midst of this, um, you can't have a schedule. And life is just much more chaotic. And then you throw on the fact that if you are poor and African-American, and you live in a poor neighborhood, that you are considered guilty um, and not very likely that you're going to be proven innocent. Uh, Because if you go to the criminal justice system, if you go to 201 Popular, you go to Juvie, um, and you don't have money to hire a lawyer, you're there. If you can't post bond, then you're there, and you lose the job that you had. And if you lose your job, then you can't pay your child support. And if you can't pay your child support, you lose your driver's license. Well, you can't get a job unless you have a driver's license. Do you see? And if you're in jail, you can't provide for that. Then the suffering just continues. And it's just this overwhelming thing. The system is overwhelming and those in it feel it. And therefore, depression and lack of motivation reigns. Why? Why not? Why not? Drink beer all day. Why not smoke dope? Why not? It's at least an escape from the pain of this system. Do you see that? Do you feel that? That's what Solomon is saying, is the reality in this fallen world. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights being denied, don't be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one. And over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. You know what Solomon is saying? He's saying what Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor among you. Why? Because the rich won't let it go. The king is going to get his. And those that work for the king are going to get theirs. And those that work for those who work for the king are going to get theirs. And somewhere down the line, somebody's not going to get theirs. And those at the top, as long as they're getting theirs, are not going to be concerned about those at the bottom who are not getting theirs. Solomon says, this is a grievous evil. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, okay, at this point of the sermon... I better wake people up and make sure I've got people's attention <laughs> because here's what those with money and probably or maybe, and I don't think so, but maybe those that work for the Jobs for Life program at, at Advanced Memphis who, who, you know, may be asking the question, well, Richard, if that's the case, then why in the world am I doing what I'm doing? Are you, are you telling those without money just forget it? No. I'm saying what Solomon is saying. I'm trying to represent what Solomon is saying, and here's what he's saying if you If you live in poverty and you you make getting out of poverty your God, you will be disappointed. If you think your greatest need in life is to get out of poverty, and if we the church thinks or or you know or somebody out in society thinks that's the greatest problem of someone living in poverty, then we sell them a idol and a false God. because then Solomon goes on to show. That the rich are the miserable ones. So if you're in poverty and all of a sudden you become rich, well, welcome to the real meaninglessness of life. You've got what you thought was going to bring you hope and happiness and it's going to leave you dry, dead, and empty. That's what Solomon is saying. We live... In the poorest city in the country, and yet the most, or one of the most, churched cities in the country. There's a disconnect there. You see, Christianity, not the government and not a nonprofit, the Church of Jesus Christ is is to address the issues of of suffering, of any kind. Here's the answer, if you will. Here is God's answer to Memphis, Luke ten thirty three. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, what this parable is telling us, or or what this parable... Let me back up. Jesus was telling this parable in response to somebody saying, what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. Okay, well, who's my neighbor? It's anybody that you come across on your way to going somewhere... That is in real need. Now hear me. The answers, the real answers for Memphis, Tennessee, have nothing to do with what the government can do or can't do. The real answers for Memphis, Tennessee, is the church of Jesus Christ. If we have an army of people and a community of people that will stop and engage and get involved, Jesus says which is what I saved you for, because that's what I did for you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the gospel says. You were broken, beat up, left for dead, and God said, you know what? I'm going to leave glory and I'm coming down. I'm going to stop and I'm going to love, I'm going to take pity on you, and I'm going to use my wealth to make you wealthy and whole again. Isn't that beautiful? And so when we get that, that's what we are to be throughout any city and any place that we go. And you only imagine what the city would be like if one congregation did that, if one group of people did that, and then imagine what would happen if the church of Jesus Christ did it. But the question at this point of the sermon is this. Why aren't we doing it church? Because money has such a grip on us. We can't let it go. Well, we should let it go. Solomon gives us eight reasons why. Let me just kind of run through them. Look at the hopelessness of money. First of all, he tells us verse 10, the more you have, the more you're going to want. It's number one. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Do you believe the word of God? Number two, the more you have, the less you're satisfied. That's counterintuitive. If I just get just 20 cents more an hour then I'll be happy. If I just make five more grand a year, then I'll be happy. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Number three, the more you have, the more people, including the government, maybe I'll put that in, uh, will come after it. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Number four, the more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? Isn't that... Isn't that crazy? I mean, you know, I've had some pretty um, broken down cars in my life. But there's something about looking at a new broken down car, you know, that's new to me, that I just bought, you know. And I'll find that I'll buy, you know, a a used car and I'll wash it and I'll get that thing all clean and I'll just stand back. You know, you put all the stuff up and your hands are wet, your shoes are wet from washing. You stand back, what do you do? You feast your eyes. And you just want to be satisfied by what you see. That's what he's saying here. Number five, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. And six, the more you have, the more you can um, hurt yourself by holding on to it. This, was, this is the one that stuck out to me this week that I probably put the most thought into. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Listen to this. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its, of its owner. What is he talking about there? I mean, can wealth really hurt you? Think about it. I think it goes two ways. You see, the first is this. One who is wealthy just becomes more greedy. When you don't have anything, you don't fear losing anything. Do you understand that proportionally, those who live in poverty give more proportionally than the wealthy? Why is that? Because the poor are better than the wealthy? No. Because it's a lot easier to give away, you know, uh, what, what you really don't have, you know. You don't have a lot anyway, so let's, you know, share it. For the wealthy, got a lot. I can't let it go because my identity is having a lot. That's what he says. So greed and worry, anxiety. thought about this. Somebody very close to me took his own life. And I think at the end of the day... It really comes down to this. He feared losing his money. He had plenty of money. It was totally irrational. But it's what kept him up at night, what made him take his own life. But then you have wealthy people that are willing to give it away. But what Solomon is saying, even that is meaningless. Why? Because then you become self-righteous and arrogant. You have a God complex thinking you can tell everybody else what to do because you give a lot. I've seen this. I've seen people come to me and offer to give a lot of money. And I can tell there's something behind it. I can tell what they really want is control over the work that I'm doing. They want control over the direction of the, not not everybody, please hear me. (laughs) But I've seen some. And it scares me to death because that's the power of money. You see, money does something to us. It's not just money. It can hurt us when we hold on to it and we look to it to be our God. And then seven, the more you have, the more you have to lose. Wealth is lost through some misfortune. You're always fearing that. Oh, gosh, how could I live if? And eight, the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that that he can carry in his hand. Eric Kidner said this. He said, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness it leaves. It's at this point that I started thinking about Fiddler on the Roof. One of my favorite plays. Um, Perchit in the play says, money is the world's curse. And Tevya, who is, is a poor man, says this. Well, may the Lord smite me with it. And may I never recover. You know? <laughs> Uh, that's our heart, isn't it? Yeah, I hear you, preacher, but. I understand, but. Now, Solomon does. He really ends this whole section by telling us that there is benefit to money under the sun, this side of heaven. Listen to what he said. He said, this is what I've observed to be good. That it's appropriate for a person to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. See that, that phrase, under the sun, during the few days of his life, God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. I mean, it sounds like what Solomon is saying is, get rich, you can insulate yourself from the the, the poor and the issues around you and the suffering around you, and this is a gift from God, oh God, thank you that I can enjoy my whatever, my life, and not have to worry about the people that are, it sounds like this is what Solomon is saying. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied With the gladness of heart. Now, this sounds so hopeful, but let me tell you something. It's not at all. What Solomon is saying is this if your hope is in money and you gain your wealth, then the best hope that you can have is this to just enjoy it the days of your life. But everything else I just said is going to be true. (laughs) You're going to be anxious, you're going to be nervous, you're going to be greedy. And when you die, you're going to be naked and somebody else is going to enjoy the the labors that you worked so hard to get. This is not Christian hope, dear friends. This is pathetic. And yet this is what we, even and maybe especially in the church, believe is the blessing of God. Just give me money so I don't have to worry about the problem, so I don't have to experience the suffering around me. And if so, then I will go to church and I will dress up and I'll drive up and I'll worship and I'll leave and I'll go about my life and I'll, I'll have joy in my heart because I'll be insulated from the needs around me, insulated and blinded by my money. Thank you, God. And oh, by the way, help those poor people. This is not Christianity. And yet this is how the church seems to live. Well, Jesus is, a, excuse me, <laughs> money is a bad God. Jesus is a good God. We've got to go to the rest of Scripture to see the hope. And what hope do we have? Howard Stern. Foul mouth, perverted, brash, Howard Stern. Has his own radio show in New York. Um, he, interestingly enough, I mean, he he'll talk about anything, pretty much, um, on his show. He'll talk about uh, his sex life with his wife, and sex life about anybody else. And yet I found it interesting, I heard this this week, that he was considering a run for public office. And and I think he probably, who knows, well, I'm not going to make that prediction, but anyway, he he was considering a run for public office, and the reason he backed out was this, he found out that he would have to disclose how much he made. So Howard Stern, who will talk about any and everything he does in the bedroom would not talk about his money. You know why? Because his real lover is his bank account and not his wife. <laughs> because you protect that which you love most. He doesn't protect his wife at all. What they do in the bedroom, what she's like, what he's like. But he protects his money. And you know, the only control, that, the only thing that limits him of what he says on his show is when they threaten to fine him. Money is his lover. Is money your lover? You see, Jesus doesn't argue that it's a lover. But what he argues is this. It's not the best lover. Jesus' whole argument in Matthew 6 and throughout the Gospels is that Jesus is a lover that will not let you down. It's beautiful. Listen. The pagans run after all these things. All the things we worry about. All the things we're up at night. We're just, we're so anxious. We're, you know, whatever. The pagans run after all these things. But your heavenly father knows that you need them. Get childlike, Jesus is saying. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He is saying become like a little child again. See that God the Father has directed His Son to come to this planet, that He might do the work that you could never do for yourself, that He might possess you, not as a slave, but as a son or daughter. You see, God wants a relationship with you. He wants your functional trust. In the things that make you scared and anxious, the things that you worry about, he says, put that worry on me because I'm your father. You're living like an orphan. You're living like you don't have a God. I want you to start living like somebody who believes he has a God who is his father. That his father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That his father's heart is all over it. That he's the one that says, here, I'll worry for you. I'll be anxious for you. Do you see that? That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to live with this functional trust. It's taking it from money and sex and pleasure and pride and beauty and and, and fitness and whatever it is, and it's putting it on God and saying, "You are the end of my desiring." This is a sign that we are Christians. Why? Because of the way that God has made this relationship possible, he has spent everything that he has that he might possess you. You see, he's, he was willing to give it all. He gave his son. That's all he had to give. He said, here, take my son. I will become poor so you can become rich. And when you understand that, you can't help but want that for somebody else. Jesus ushers us into relationship. I took these eight things that I mentioned a minute ago, ago, the dangers and and pitfalls of money, and I reversed them. Uh, Let's look at how Jesus uh, reverses, how he's a better hope. Eight reasons why Jesus is a better hope than money. Number one, the more of Jesus you have, the more you want, and the more you can have. The more of Jesus you have, The more you want and the more you can have. Jonathan Edwards has helped me tremendously. He's an old dead theologian um, that said some amazing stuff. And probably the best thing that I read of Jonathan Edwards um, and understood is a little treatise he did on heaven and hell. And I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes thinking about heaven because, you know, God does talk about rewards and blessing. And I'm thinking, okay, well, How can it's just hard for me to conceive, like, how can pie get more than me and me be satisfied and not be content, you know, not be mad at pie and God, you know? Well, Jonathan Edwards addresses that. He said, look, very simply, if you have a five gallon bucket and a 10 gallon bucket and you fill them both up, are they both full? Well, yeah. Okay. well, there you go. Does the five gallon bucket whine about not having six gallon? No, it knows it can't hold any more. All I can think about is I'm full. But what he says is this, and I think he's dead on. He says, but the capacity, this is how it's different for us in glory. The capacity of receiving that and the amount of blessing we can hold increases throughout eternity. And so what we have is this picture of we may start here, but we're going to just there is no end. And so heaven is always higher up and deeper in. It's always expanding and getting better and better and better with no dissatisfaction whatsoever. The more of Jesus you get, it's not like the bag of chips that I love to eat. And by the end of it, I hate myself, you know. It's not like that barbecue. You know, man, the first, you know, the first pound is good, second and third pound, boy, you're dying. It's not like that. It's the more you get. The more satisfied you become. Why? Because you were made for that. You were made for him. And then secondly, the more of Jesus you have, the more satisfied you become. Money leaves an emptiness. But Jesus doesn't. Thirdly, the more of Jesus you have, the more of him you want others to have. That, that's why you become. That, that's the whole concept of mission. It's not the command to go that's going to get you to go. But it's receiving, it's realizing that Jesus came to you. And in that moment, you want to go to somebody else. When you understand the depth of your sin and how much you didn't deserve Jesus coming, when you understand how much he has done for you, you want somebody to experience that. I mean, that is the power for mission. That's the power for evangelism. You don't need a strategy. You just need love. You need to be more full of Jesus. And you'll go. Number four, the more of Jesus you have, the more superior His goodness becomes to you. Five, the more of Jesus you have, the more peace. I love Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust Do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Isn't that beautiful? You have an investment. You've got a 401k that you can just dump everything you have in and it's going to be safe. His name is Jesus. And then the more of Jesus you have, the more benefits you enjoy. I I was thinking a lot about this this week. Um, The more the longer you go with Jesus, the more benefits you enjoy. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, oftentimes we go to young people and we say, don't break the law, because if you break the law, you're going to go to jail. Don't do this or here's the consequence. All right. Uh, You know, you don't have to worry about jail because you got me to worry about. You know, we do all this negative stuff. What heaven does and what uh, Jesus does is he says, look, he said, "Um, give up, obey me, follow me and watch the benefits that come. And he doesn't promise to increase our bank account, although some preach that he does. But what he promises to do is to give us blessing that we can never achieve outside of life with him. I was thinking about that a lot this week. I was doing premarital counseling with a couple, and they're just starting out. I'm going to marry to do their wedding ceremony next Saturday night. And, you know, they're, I don't know, 20, 21, 22, whatever. And, you know, they're starting out. And they're wide-eyed and excited and can't wait. And this is what, you know, all of that. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I've been married, it'll be 30 years, this November. And as I look back, and I, I see a lot of failure, I see a lot of disobedience. And yet, over the long haul, I see, by God's abundant provision and grace, a willingness on Rachel and my part to say, we're here, and we're not going anywhere. Uh, we're going to love each other. We're going to figure it out. We're going to keep going. And what I see from that is what just happened this morning as I was standing up here. A little three-year-old boy came and jumped in my arms. And do you understand that I don't think about that kind of benefit when I am battling with God and whether it's my marriage or whatever it is. But that's a benefit that God surprised me about and surprises me with. And it's constant. The benefits of relationship with Jesus just are infinite. The longer you go, the more you see it. I think that's what Jesus tells us. And then seventh, the more of Jesus you have, the more you gain. Not lose, gain. And the more of Jesus you have, the more you realize what you will get in glory. The older you get, um, the more you see this. We had another friend pass away this week. Cancer took yet another friend. We will go to yet another uh, funeral this Tuesday. We will see more grieving people and we will grieve. And there's so much hope for those who trust in Christ. <laughs> because you can always say that no matter what happens in this life, it's going to be made up for a million times over in glory. What are you suffering with and from right now? Everybody in this room is suffering from something. Do you understand that glory is a day that you will suffer no more? And Jesus is the security. The Holy Spirit is the down payment guaranteeing that you will go to glory if you were God's child. Not your obedience or your disobedience. Isn't that what we focus on? Oh, there's no way God could love me. Yes, there is. And the way was Jesus. You're right. It's not you. And I hope that you and I get that experience every day that I can't do it. But if we don't go that next step, we're hopeless. But Jesus has done it. And because of that, there is a land being prepared for me one day. And all of this will be but a a, a small remembrance. And heaven will just go on and on and on. Dear friends, where are you investing the hope of your soul? If it's wealth and money, God help you. If it's God himself, he will help you. <laughs> Put your trust in Jesus right now. Seriously. Cry out to him. Do you know how you know someone's ready to go to rehab when they are crying When they're saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what people think about me. I am desperate and I need help. Dear friend, do you need help this morning? Go to Jesus. Fall before Him. You say, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Fall before Him. That's why AA keeps going. Because you never outgrow it. Well, guess what? You never outgrow need this side of heaven. If this is some new thing to you this morning, dear friend, welcome to the Christian life. The Christian life is need and satisfaction in Christ over and over again. So may we come to Him and may we delight in Him this morning because He is wealth and He is a treasure that will not disappoint. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for the hope that we have in You. Thank You that You are an investment that will not let us down. You are constantly surprising us, constantly growing us, constantly opening our eyes to your beauty and your majesty and your holiness. And we thank you. So, God, I pray that you would open our hearts wherever we are this morning in this place to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ, of the beauty of the love of you, O Father, of the beauty of the power of you, Holy Spirit, the one who promises to come inside of us and move us emotionally and rationally to the Father to live a life of trust and hope. Oh God, would you do that work in us? Convert, revive, reform us. Oh God, we need you. Come now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.